1: thanks for listening to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast with me, Dr. Nicole Plenty. You guys, it has been a week. This week, I went to the American Medical Association Conference. And you know, this is one of my favorite organizations. um, And it's because I get to advocate for you guys. I get to do the thing that I love to do the most. And some of the conferences that we go to, meaning like the OBGYN conference, it's an educational conference for the OBGYN. Or like if you know of orthopedic surgeon, they're going to ortho conference. Like we go to these conference because, conferences because we're doing continuing medical education so that we can stay up to date on things that we do day to day. Right. We want to make sure we have the latest guidelines on everything, but the American Medical Association conference is completely different in that it is a policy making conference. It is composed of every specialty of medicine and even some not non-specialties of medicine. So there are hospitals administ- administrators and, and, and other organizations. Um, there's the American Medical Women's Association. So any medical organization basically, is invited to participate in the AMA generally. And based on what the aims are for particular organizations, they can come to the AMA and then all physicians that are representative of these organizations, I'm talking about state societies, specialty societies, other organizations that are in medicine, we then come together as a body to say, this is what the American Medical Association is going to advocate for on behalf of Physicians. So I love this conference because it is the most powerful organization in medicine. It's the one that actually gets to go to, you know, your government and say, this is what's important to patients and this is what's important to doctors. So I absolutely love this conference because it's just like the business of medicine. Right. So now. You hear how busy I made that sound, right? Like it's a big deal. But I chose to travel with Harrison and my mom, y'all, to this very, very busy conference. Now, the issue is traveling with a toddler. Now y'all go back and listen to the episode that I did on traveling with a toddler. And after this week, I felt like I should have listened to my own episode to update my own self about what I need to do to try with a toddler. And let me say, people think, people that don't have children, okay, think, I would never, if that was my child, I would never, right? I remember when I was single, not even married, single, I used to see people with their kids on a leash, right? I would never, that's child abuse, I would never. Now I understand exactly why those children are on leashes. Now, mind you, Harrison is not on one because, you know, in my head, I just didn't want to put him on one. But I, I now understand why people have their kids on leashes because children that are like between the ages of two and five really don't listen. And they really don't understand that they could get either snatched up trampled on they can get hurt or they can get lost like they don't understand that they just think I need to be free don't hold my hand get away from me I want to do it by myself I do it myself if I hear that phrase one more time I'm gonna scream I do it myself so that is like a real thing to toddlers the other thing I used to judge people about is when their kids like had fits like literally had tantrums my child would never do that. I would discipline my child. That child is spoiled. That's why they're throwing tantrums. Y'all know, uh-uh. No, no, no. 3 4 you you can't control them. Okay? You can do the best you can for these children and they will still throw tantrums. Okay? That's just what it is. They're going to throw tantrums. Um and you have to constantly discipline them. And you really do have to have the patience of Job because they are going to fall out on you and they are going to make you late to whatever you're, you're going to be late for. Okay. Whatever you're trying to do on time, it's not going to happen, right? You have to prepare for them very, very early, get there early. So uh, go back and listen on my ep- to my episode on traveling with uh, a baby or toddler. I don't know if that's exactly the title of it, but it's something like that. Traveling with kids, basically. Go back and listen to that because I did give a lot of good tips that I should have taken my own advice this time. Because when I say the number one tip is get there early, it is get there early. Like they're always going to have to pee. They're always going to have to pee. Just make them pee. They're always going to have to go potty. They're always going to be hungry. They don't understand when their boarding group is called. That does not mean get in line. Like they are a struggle. So y'all, it's just, it's just a lot. Now, the other thing I want to mention to you guys that's coming up, that's uber important. You know, last month we had Mother's Day and every week I reminded you to play the episode out loud for your spouses or your significant others so that they would not have an excuse that they didn't know that Mother's Day was coming up, right? And so you could buy, you know, they could make sure you got the gift that you wanted. I sort of kind of dropped the ball on Father's Day because this episode is dropping Thursday and Father's Day is Sunday. So I didn't give y'all a lot of pre-warning, but if you're listening to this before Father's Day, y'all, you can't forget them. You cannot forget them. Go and make sure that your Significant other has a gift, okay, for Father's Day. Because let me tell you, if you didn't have a gift for Mother's Day, it would hit the fan, right? Nobody will be safe in that household. But and don't go get him a, a hammer, okay? Don't do that. <laughs> like get him an actual gift that he likes. Take him somewhere nice or, or let him go somewhere nice. Guys like massages too. Go. Go get him a massage. They like bags too. Go buy him a travel bag. Like buy him some new shoes. Buy him something nice. Okay. Um, because dads don't get enough credit. I will say that. They just don't get enough credit. But it's time for us to step up as big girls and make sure that these men have gifts from their from their children. Okay. Don't be looking at them crazy cook for them and let them do the things that they wanna do, spoil them on their, on their weekend, just like you guys spoil on your weekend. And y'all, let me know what y'all did for your honeys for Father's Day. I would love to, to reshare that on my social media platform. So let me know what you did for your honeys for Father's Day. And don't forget, it is this Sunday, is Father's Day. Now, a friend of mine was asking, Oh, I'm estranged from my from my baby daddy like he's an ex right, so I'm not buying him anything uh, okay y'all let's 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 talk about this all right now, if your baby daddy is just a baby daddy and you're not with them, the question is should you be giving him a father's Day gift? Maybe I should post this as a poll on Friday. Should you be giving him a father's Day gift now, my answer is. If your child cannot drive to get their own gift or doesn't have money to buy his father a gift and you're not with them, then it is your responsibility to make sure that little Timmy buys his daddy a gift. Now, that's my two cents. You you need to say, hey, let's go buy your dad a gift or hey, I bought your dad a gift from you. That needs to happen. Okay, He needs to understand that his dad is important or her dad is important. So yes, I do think that dads, even if you're not with them, even if you don't like him anymore, if he's actually around and he's doing what he's supposed to do, so he's seeing your child on a normal basis, he's or he's providing for your child, then yes, you should buy him a Father's Day gift, okay? And put your kid's name on it if your kid is super little. If your kid is old enough to understand what's going on. in that father, it is father's day that you take your child to the store, to the target and say, we're not going to the target to buy you a scooter. We're going to the target to make sure we get your daddy a gift. Okay. And make sure that he buys a gift or she buys a gift for, uh, for dad and a card. Okay. That is the least we can do for these fathers. We do want to celebrate them. Now, if, he didn't buy you anything for Mother's Day and y'all are estranged, then at least buy, be the bigger person and, and have little Timmy at least send a card or buy a card, okay? That's the exception. But I guess I need to poll, poll the children. Do you buy Father's Day gifts for your baby daddy, okay? Or ex-husband if you are not together? That will be the poll question. All right. So this week, you guys, we're going to switch it up. So I told you guys, I've been at a conference. I've been traveling with Harrison. I've been doing a lot. So for this week, since you guys love to send all these questions, I figured we could answer some of these questions live. So we'll just do an Ask Dr. Plenty sort of kind of show so that we can go through some of these. And then, um, yeah, you guys just keep the questions coming and maybe we'll do this more often. All right. So my medical intern has a list of y'all's questions that we're going to answer in our time together today. So medical intern, what's our first
2: question? This one says, is it typical that after IUD removal and you become pregnant, that the implantation period is a little heavier and lasts for more days?
1: So that's a convoluted question, right? When you get questions like typical, know that everyone is a little bit different, right? So what's typical for me may not be typical for you. So I would say, what is what normally happens, okay? What's textbook? So after IUD removal or not after IUD removal, let's take the IUD removal out of the picture and just say, hey, when I become pregnant, is it okay in certain situations, is implantation spotting a little heavier and lasts a little longer? There is an episode on implantation spotting. Let me go and say implantation spotting happens 10 to 12 days after that, Uh basically 10, 12 days of pregnancy. So after you miss period. So most of the time it's before you even know you're pregnant, right? You're talking about two weeks. Is it typical for you to have heavy implantation spotting? The answer is heavy is subjective. So I would say no. Implantation spotting is usually like a little bit of spotting, meaning pink with wiping, maybe enough to have like a little bit of like light red on a liner, okay? And it usually lasts for one to two days, right? That's implantation spotting. It's not going to be long. It's not going to be heavy like a period. So if you have something that's heavy like a period and you've missed a period, and you, it's not day, 10 to 12 days, like it's like you missed a period and you could be like four or five weeks pregnant. That is more consistent with um, probably a subchorionic hemorrhage, meaning blood that collects between the two layers of the, of the uh, gestational sac than just implantation spotting, okay? Could also be that you've had sexual intercourse and the cervix is very friable. So you could have some bleeding from your cervix. You could have a laceration or a cut in the vagina if you have rough intercourse, okay? You could have what's called a threatened miscarriage. And anytime you have vaginal bleeding and you have a baby with a heartbeat still, that's called a threatened miscarriage. Now, mo- mo- a lot of times threatened miscarriages can go on to be normal pregnancies. They're just threatened, right? Like you're bleeding, we don't really know why, it's just a threat, okay? So that doesn't mean you're having a miscarriage. I, the term is just a misnomer, but it's a threat. So at the very least, if you know you're pregnant already and you have vaginal bleeding, it's a threatened miscarriage. And now we need to figure out why you're. It's a threat. So all threatened miscarriages is all a threatened miscarriage is, is vaginal bleeding, less than twenty weeks. That's it. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't. You can have a completely normal pregnancy with the baby with a heartbeat, but we got to figure out where the blood is coming from now let's put the IUD in there, right? So now is it normal for you to have heavier implantation spotting if you have an IUD in place, or if you had an IUD that was removed? And the answer is no. Usually IUDs make people more fertile after, meaning after it's pulled, usually people ovulate right after, especially like Morena's pretty known for that, like almost like ovulation induction, like you're not gonna be fertile while while it's in and then when you remove it, you are more likely to ovulate right after, but that has nothing to do with the amount of implantation spotting, okay? Because the IUDs removed, you're ovulating, you shouldn't be spotting because of the IUD still, okay? Like most of the time, if you have an IUD, you will have abnormal menstrual bleeding. Like you can have a period and spotting between your cycles for up to 60 days if you read the package insert. It can be sort of kind of annoying, But then most people after three months don't have a cycle or have a very light cycle, right? Because the lining in your uterus is very thin. So your implantation spotting should not be heavier just because you had an IUD in. So if you have heavier implantation spotting, I would make sure that that's what it is. So you always need to tell your OBGYN anytime you have vaginal bleeding and you know you're pregnant. Vaginal bleeding in pregnancy always prompts an ultrasound so we can see what's in your uterus. And it also always prompts usually a cervical exam of some sort, right? So if we're looking in your uterus and your cervix looks closed you're over, and the placenta is not, not, not near that, meaning you're over 13 weeks, they may digitally check you. Like they may check your cervix digitally. But if you're very early and they can't see the placenta or the placenta's um, close to the opening, then they will do a speculum exam, which is the same speculum you have when you get a pap smear, and look at your cervix. Okay, they want to see if it's opening, they want to see if there are any lesions in the vagina, they want to see if there's anything like any tears inside of the vagina or your cervix that could cause the bleeding. So that always warrants further workup, and then also. If you're bleeding and we don't know where the blood's coming from, your OBGYN will also do at least a type and screen. So we need to make sure we confirm your blood type and screen. And that's because you can make antibodies that can attack the baby's red blood cells with the next pregnancy. Okay, so if it's your first pregnancy and you have in your RH negative, A negative, B negative, AB negative, O negative, and the father is positive, then the baby has a high chance of also being positive. So that means you can produce antibodies that can attack the baby's red blood cells, but not this baby. It makes antibodies and it sensitizes the next pregnancy. Okay, so it's not, you wouldn't make enough antibodies in the same pregnancy to sensitize the same pregnancy, but it could cause you to have miscarriages because of that with the next pregnancy. So I say all that because if you bleed, then you need what's called Rogam to prevent antibodies, okay? There's a whole episode on that. Y'all can go back and listen to that. But uh, the short answer to this is no, an IUD does not cause heavier implantation spotting.
2: All right, medical intern, what's our next question? This one says, I get UTIs almost once a month. I think that intercourse with my husband is causing me to have UTIs. Is that possible?
1: Yes and no. So when we talk about urinary tract infections, let's talk, let's think about the anatomy, right? So y'all, we have a couple holes down there, three, right? You have the vagina, you have the urethra, which is where the urine comes out, and you have the anus, okay? Your urethra is going to exit in front of the vagina, okay? I, I know that this is, Astonishing to some people that you're not peeing out of the vagina, but you're not. Okay. It's a different hole, but it is in, in proximity to the clitoris. Okay. It's right there, right? So you got the urethra, the clitoris, which is not a hole. It's a nerve bundle. Okay. And then you got the vagina. So obviously you are stimulating a lot of things down there when you, you have intercourse because when the penis is inserted into the vagina, you are hitting, you know, the clitoris is nearby. It's on the top of that. And the urethra is right on the top of that. So if you have any stimulation of the clitoris, that can potentially introduce bacteria into the urethra, okay? The other thing is some people, if you have vaginal dryness, it's gonna cause more trauma to the to the vagina and the clitoris and the urethra, okay? So some people, because your hormones every month, obviously if you're ovulating, your hormones are gonna be off every month. That could cause you to have, to be more prone to urinary tract infection just because your hormones are off. And then if you mix the trauma to the urethra and the fact that you have vaginal dryness, well, yeah, it's very common for people to have urinary tract infection. So this is what we're gonna do to prevent us from having urinary tract infections once a month. One, every time you have intercourse, I know you wanna lay there and cuddle, you got to get up and go pee, okay? You need to pee every time, okay? Why? Because his hand's been down there, your hand's been down there, the penis has been down there rubbing on everything, clear the bacteria that's ascended from the vagina or or from, from whatever's been touching down there, okay? urinate after you pee so before you lay down and cuddle again just urinate number 2 you want to reduce inflammation and trauma in the vagina and around the clitoris okay which i e the urethra is right there so you want to w- use lubrication i know people are like i got that wet wet right black women we proud of that. we 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 don't need any we don't need any moisturizer down there We don't need the lubrication, right? But we do, we do need a water-based lubricant, okay? There are a couple companies and I am not endorsed by them. My executive producer needs to get me some endorsements though because I can tell you all about these, okay? Uber Lube is a really good lubricant and it also is a good uh, moisturizer for your hair. Like you can use it on your scalp, y'all. That's how thin it is. So it's almost like a vegetable oil um, consistency. That's or olive oil. That is a good lubricant. Now it's pricey, but they do have a travel size that's coming out soon. But Uber lube is a good lubricant. And y'all sleeping on Honeypot. Honeypot has a great lubricant. It is amazing, actually. <laughs> Honeypot lubricant. Okay. Now you can't use that on your scalp. But when I tell you, you only need a little drop, you only need a little drop, okay? Honeypot has a great lubricant, all right? Now, obviously, if you're somebody that likes a more gel consistency, um, that's gonna be a little heavier. Astroglide, that's what we use in the clinic. Um, that's what we use on like your the speculum. It's not like a gel gel, like a ultrasound gel. It has, a, it's a little, it's thinner than that but it's going to be a lot thicker than your honey pot and definitely thicker than Uber Lube, okay? So Astro Gel uh, is what we use when we put, that we put on the speculum. Um, and then also there are a lot of natural lubricants you can use. Now, I don't believe in putting Vaseline on a condom, but you can put vas- uh, You can put olive oil. Olive oil is a good lubricant with or without a condom. And it probably is cheaper than all of these, <laughs> but but some people don't like the scent of olive oil, Okay. I say all that to say, if you have lubricant there, that's going to decrease irritation down there, okay? And that's going to decrease irritation, that decrease the friction, and that's going to decrease inflammation. Lubrication every time, even if you think it's wet. And because we go through these highs and lows when we're having sex, especially if you're somebody that you're really excited the first time, but now you're still excited and you want to do round two, that round two might dry you out, and then you're gonna run into friction. And the older you are, the more likely you are to have these periods of wet. Okay, wait. Uh, I'm, I'm turned off a little bit. Okay, now I'm turning back on. Get you some lubricant so it's gonna be consistent throughout. Okay, I'm telling. When I tell you the honeypot drop, it don't. Ma- it lasts the whole time. Get you some lubricant the whole time, and then make sure that you are urinating after you have sex, even if you have sex two times, you should be, make yourself pee twice, okay? To clear the bacteria. And if you're doing those, taking those steps and you're still getting urinary tract infections, then your OBGYN should do a urinalysis and culture you for sensitivity. Cause it may be that you're being treated with the antibiotic that is not a hundred percent, that the bacteria is not a hundred percent sensitive to, right? So we can have some intermediate sensitivity, meaning you're killing some of the bacteria, but it's still sort of kind of there because the, the antibiotic selection is the wrong antibiotic, okay? So then you need to get another antibiotic. Now, some people do have chronic urinary tract infections, but it doesn't sound like this is what this patient has because you get them once a month. People that have chronic UTIs are like, I get a UTI every week, right? I have burning every single week, okay? Those are people that need to be on suppression right? Like you just need to be on macrobid once a day for suppression because you're getting urinary tract infections too often. So doesn't sound like that. Sound like we need to take the steps to make sure we're cleansing the urethra after sex and then adding lubrication first. All right, medical intern, what's our next question?
2: This one says, I just found out I was pregnant. What question should I ask my doctor?
1: It's such a vague question, right? Let me start by saying you should ask your doctor any question you want to ask then the most important thing is you need to make sure you have a doctor that you feel like you can ask questions to. So I would say whatever questions you have, ask your doctor, but you need to make sure that if you get in that clinic and you feel like that person is rushing you and not answering your questions or doesn't want to give you the time to ask the questions you have, you might want to select another doctor. Okay, that that being able to communicate with your provider is a big deal. Like you need to be able to get in touch with your provider readily. You need to be able to ask your doctor questions. So I would say the first question, now that I'm thinking about it, if you're trying to see how this doctor works, meaning if you can be comfortable with them, hey, if I have a question, how do I contact you? How accessible is this person? Who else will answer the questions for for me? Is it always going to be your medical assistant? Am I always going to see you? How am I communicating with you? Okay, because you need to make sure that if it's on a Wednesday and you have a headache and you're sending them a message, they need to be getting back to you less than twenty four hours later. That's important. Asking their time frame of communication. How do how do they communicate with you? And um, who answers their inbox messages? That's number one. Number two, if you're black, brown, overweight, you have high blood pressure, autoimmune diseases, you need to ask them, hey, should I be on aspirin starting at 12 weeks? That is really important. And I I feel like people should not have to advocate for themselves to be on aspirin, but you almost do. Because I'm in the great state of Georgia and I'm telling you 80% of the people that I see that need to be on aspirin to help reduce their risk of what's called preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure and vascular damage, which we look for as protein in your urine. And it's very common in black and brown women. They're not on aspirin. That's the only thing we have to reduce your risk of preeclampsia. Now, according to the American College of OBGYNs, they recommend 81 milligrams once a day, right? And listen, I'm on the national board for the American College of OBGYN, So I understand the guideline. But there are there are new studies out that say we really need to be on at least 100 milligrams of aspirin with other studies saying 150. We don't make 100 here and we don't make 150. So the US studies have re- been repeated with 162 milligrams of aspirin. There are two studies. I'm gonna post them on Facebook. So if you're not following me there, please follow me there because that's where the articles will be posted. And those say 162 milligrams taken once a day, starting at 12 weeks, going all the way to 36 weeks has a 29% risk reduction. Now, obviously everybody doesn't need to be on aspirin. So you do need to talk to your OBGYN about whether you need to be on aspirin or not. Some people are allergic to aspirin. Obviously I don't want you to take anything you're allergic to. Some people may have bleeding in the first trimester. Then we would push you until 16 weeks to start that aspirin. Um, Some people may have bleeding disorders or low platelets. So we want to make sure that it's safe for you to start aspirin. But most people, you're going to be safe to start aspirin. Now, who needs aspirin? Anybody that's black, brown, if you have a BMI over 30, if you are over age 35, if you have lupus, thyroid disease, if you have rheumatoid arthritis any autoimmune condition if you have pre-existing diabetes type 1 or type 2 if you have pre-existing high blood pressure if you have had if you had preeclampsia with any previous pregnancy then you need to be on aspirin okay now your OBGYN can choose their poison now I just gave you the data on why I always recommend two low-dose aspirins for a total of 162 milligrams. But if your OBGYN is still following the ACOG national guideline, which I'm not knocking, 81 milligrams once a day, and that still has some risk reduction, okay? Usually about a 15% risk reduction is what the study said, 10 to 15%. That's why that's 162. When we saw that 29% risk reduction, we're like, woo-woo, this is a game changer because if we can prevent black and brown women from getting preeclampsia and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, then we can prevent some maternal deaths. And so when people come in my office and they are not on it, I'm like, why? You know, Give me the reason why. And go talk to your provider and ask them, why am I not on this? Okay, because this is what is going to help prevent me from having bad stuff happen. Either way, ask your OBGYN that, okay? Also ask your OBGYN who's delivering. What's the likelihood that you're gonna deliver me? Do you take call? Do you do your deliveries? Do you work with a team of midwives or or if you're on call, do you only do C-sections? Like who's doing what in the office? So you always want to know upfront who's delivering you and want to know that's as early, early as possible. Because if you're not comfortable with that, their answer, then you still have time to find another OBGYN team that can accommodate you. So make sure you're asking these questions very early on. Now they're going to give you the My Pregnancy Journal. They're going to give you the list of foods to eat and foods to avoid. They're going to tell you to take prenatal vitamins. If you're under 12 weeks, you need to go ahead and add uh, extra folic acid. Go ahead and add a milligram of folate that helps prevent spina bifida. Um, Start that now, okay? Start that now because after 12 weeks, it's not going to be helpful and folate is not harmful. Everybody can take folate. You're just going to you just poop it out if you take too much folate. So it's not harmful, um, but that does help reduce your risk of spina bifida. So they're going to walk you through what to expect the pregnancy. So so just make sure you have a pregnancy packet, but but the aspirin is important. Who's delivering me or who's covering for you? That's important. How do I get in touch with you? In, a, in, in case I have questions, that's important. And let me add, if you ever try to get in touch with your provider and you can't, and you feel like you something's wrong, go to the hospital. Don't wait to them for them to answer you. You can always go to either the ER or OB triage if that hospital has an OB triage. Um, when you get to the ER, if you don't know they have OB triage, when you get to the ER, just tell them, hey, I'm pregnant and I have these issues. Um, and they will gladly direct you to an OB triage area if your hospital has one. All right, medical intern,
2: do we have any more questions? Yes, this one says, I had a miscarriage a few weeks ago. How long should I wait before trying to get pregnant again?
1: So I am not a waiter, right? Like I usually tell people when you're mentally ready to get pregnant, give yourself, talk to your spouse or, or your mate or whomever you're having a baby with and allow yourself to have a cycle. And then once you have a cycle, try to get pregnant. Right. Like there's no you're going to be more fertile after a miscarriage than you are if you wait, you know, a year or two. But you got to be mentally ready. So in transparency. So if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that Harrison was like a horrible, super high risk pregnancy that I almost died before Harrison. I was pregnant and I had a miscarriage and that was very out of it was like an out of body experience for me that I really did not deal with. Like I just didn't want to deal with it. Right. Like I knew I was pregnant. I was on the row the rower at uh Orange Theory and I actually love Orange Theory. I need to go back. But and all of a sudden I felt a pop right I, I got off the machine and I didn't know I was pregnant at that time. But then I went to, to a clinic. I did a pregnancy test. The pregnancy test was positive. And then they did an ultrasound and they couldn't see anything initially, but I have these big old fibroids. So I didn't really think anything of it. And then the next week they saw a gestational sac with a yolk sac. And then then they saw a little baby with a heartbeat. And then the week after that, there was no heartbeat, right? I didn't bleed. I nothing happened. I was measuring around 7 weeks there was just no heartbeat. And I remember telling my husband, I think I've had a miscarriage and he told me to wait, wait on Kim who's my OBGYN. And I did another ultrasound maybe a couple of days later and there was still no heartbeat and I knew. At that time I knew, I called her and I said I had a miscarriage. She didn't she, she didn't even do an ultrasound. I had done so many confirmatory ultrasounds. I knew. By this time, I should have a baby with a heartbeat. I didn't. And so I had a DNC. I worked the whole week. I diagnosed that on a Tuesday. I worked the whole week and I asked her to do my DNC on a Friday so I didn't have to miss work. She did my DNC on 430 on Friday. I went home after that. The next morning, I went to my sororities chapter meeting and talked about cotillion. And Sunday, I went to church and Monday, I was back at work. I mean, it was like, I did not skip a beat, but mentally I was not ready to have a baby, right? Like I could not fathom going through that again. Like I just didn't want to go through it. I wanted to take my time. I had not grieved. I didn't actually grieve until we got the miscarriage packet. Like they mail you a packet with like, uh, you know, a little memorabilia in it and. I just remember like at that point, I was like, oh my God, this is real. Like I've actually had a miscarriage, but even still, it wasn't until like the memorial service I had to speak at for my patients that I really, I mean, I literally broke down and started to stop. I had to leave the program. And by that time, it was eight months after. And so we didn't try to get pregnant with Harrison for a whole year. Everybody is different with how they cope. Right. So when should you try to get pregnant? It's when you're ready. Like once you're having normal monthly menstrual cycles and you feel like you are ready mentally to try to get pregnant again, then you and your husband or your spouse or your mate or whomever go for it. Okay. But you have to be mentally ready physically. You're going to be ready as soon as you start having cycles. Okay. So once you have a normal monthly cycle, then you're ready with the next ovulation, okay? The exception is if you've had a, a loss, like second or third trimester loss and you had to have a C-section, you do wanna give yourself time for that C-section scar to heal. So you wanna give yourself, you know, I always tell tell people almost treat it like a myomectomy. So myomectomy with the fibroids removed, you wanna give yourself About six six to eight weeks, okay. Some OBs say three months. Um, I would not wait more than three. You don't have to wait more than that time. Um, But if it's a miscarriage with like a DNC or you pass everything vaginally, then as soon as you start ovulating again, then you can just continue and go on about your path. But you have to be mentally ready to move forward. All right, medical intern. Do we have any more questions left?
2: Yes, this is the last one, and it says. My man has a discharge from his penis. I've seen it now for a few days. I've been with him for two years and until now, never seen this before. Do you think he has an STD? The question
1: is, do you think he, he has an STD, right? So you know your man's penis better than I know it, right? Because I don't know your man's penis at all. Some men, when they get excited, they can have pre-ejaculate, right? That's very natural. If he's in the mood, hot and bothered, You can have pre-ejaculate. That's how people say, oh my God, I got pregnant and we didn't even have sex, right? Y'all was still doing some fondling. That's how you end up getting pregnant, right? From the pre-ejaculate. Pre-ejaculate does have sperm in it. So is it that your man has pre-ejaculate or not? Now you've been with this man for two years and you've never seen this? Hmm, one, it could be that you weren't paying attention to that, okay? And so maybe he has he has had that and you just didn't see it. Number 2, if your man has discharge, what kind of discharge are we talking about? You know, we talking about like a little clearness coming from the head of the penis or we talking about like copious discharge? We talking about green discharge or we talking about discharge with an odor? Or we talking about discharge that's associated with a rash? Or we talking about discharge and he's in pain? Are we talking about burning and yearning and burning with urination and discharge? Like I need a little bit more information than just discharge because some men, depending on what's going on, can have pre-ejaculate. Discharge without an erection in a man that has never had discharge before requires some workup, okay? I would straight up ask him, Like if you've been with him for two years, you should be able to talk to him. Even if you haven't been with him for two years, let's say you've been with him for two months. If you have a sex, you should be able to talk to him, okay? He and your business, you in his, hey, what is this? How long have you noticed this? Are you having burning with urination? Like, is this different? When's the last time you got checked out for STDs? Okay, and to be safe, if I were you, I would get checked for STDs. If you think this is something new that he has going on and You're like, let me, I would get checked for STDs before I had intercourse with him. And I would urge him to get checked for STDs if this is something new. And I would tell him, hey, this is not normal. Like what is going on? I've never seen you with discharge before. Have you noticed this before? And I would ask him more about his symptoms. And I would say, yeah, babe, I think you need to get tested. But we've been together for two years and I'm just seeing this for two weeks. So what's going on? And be honest with me, because if I find out in the clinic, it's going to be, I, I might have to pull a above it. Okay. I would straight up ask him, but if he is like, oh no, you know, like, you know, in your gut if this man is cheating, like if he's not giving you an honest answer about what's going on with his body, you get your body checked out. And if your body comes back with something that you didn't have before. Then you need to let him know, hey, you need to get checked out. You gave me an STD and I'm not pleased. And then you have to make some decisions for yourself. If you're married to this man, you got to make some decisions like, hey, what's going on? Have you been cheating? Because I have an STD, if you do, obviously. If you're not with him and he's cheating, I would say run, okay? Because if he's cheating before you get married, it's going to be real hard to trust him if you do decide to stay with him and you do get married. So let me break it down, my recommendations. One, could he have a STD? Yes, he could, but it also could be pre-ejaculate and so could be that now you're paying attention to his penis and as in before you were. Two, ask questions. What are your associated symptoms? Three, suggest that you get tested, that both of you guys get tested. And four, do not have sex with this man until you know whether or not he has an STD or not, okay? Meaning both of y'all get tested if this is really like a new finding, okay? Make sure. And sometimes we have to have these tough conversations, but if you're sleeping with somebody, you have to have the tough conversations, okay? This is your health, Okay. An STD that's untreated can cause you to have swelling of the tubes or what's called a hydrosalpinx that can lead to infertility. You can have inflammation or a whole bunch of scar tissue around your tubes. You can have abscesses in your pelvis. I mean, this is serious. So you need to make sure that you're not walking around with STD that's untreated and you need to let him know Hey, I see this discharge. What is this? You don't have to be mean about it, but definitely ask him directly what you're seeing. Because if you've seen it for two weeks, have you had sex with him in that two week period that you've seen it? Hopefully not. And if you have, y'all both need to get tested if you really do highly suspect that this is really an STD. All right, medical intern, do we have any more cases or questions? And she's shaking her head, No. So thank you guys so much for listening to Pregnancy Pros podcast. I really enjoy answering you guys' questions live on this week's episode. So maybe we'll have to do this a little bit more often. So don't forget, if you have a unique pregnancy situation or an interesting case to share, please email me at pregnancypros at gmail.com to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram at pregnancy underscore pearls and Facebook at Pregnancy Pearls. And you guys, please feel free to catch up on the YouTube channel. We got a lot of good episodes this season and last season and the season before that. And you can also catch up on the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash Pregnancy Pearls with Dr. Pliny, for more quick talks on pregnancy complications. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening.
0: Bye. regarding a medical condition pregnancy pearls is a mean old lion media production